Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 116 with Zoe Ajonia. Bringing in the flavors of the world is what I'm part of doing, is what I do. So I'm encouraging people to do that on one level, right? But there is this really specific notion about who gets to benefit when they write about food, when they develop an ingredient or you know something for a shelf in a supermarket. Who are the people who are being excluded and who are the people who are benefiting? It honestly feels like the tidal flow against what I'm trying to say about that is so big and so overwhelming that it's almost impossible to counter at this point. Because how do you take on Trader Joe's? How do you take on, you know what I mean? It's like they're all doing it now. And once they've started, why would they stop? Because they know, right? People like me and you know, many, many others in this food space have been talking about West African food and West African cuisine for years and years and years and years. Hello, 12 years counting. And to be completely and often dismissed when I've spoken to R&D companies at supermarkets and they're like, oh, West African food isn't a thing. It's not trending. It's not going to cross over. And now they're all putting out, right, their own versions of a jollof sauce or a suya blend and as are white, famous male chefs putting it in their cookbooks. Some of them don't even know that they've got this recipe in their cookbook because they don't actually write the fucking cookbook. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Chefs Without Restaurants. I'm your host, Chris Beer. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant, unless you count Burger King or Boston Market. On this episode, we're joined by Zoe Ajonia. She's a chef, writer, entrepreneur, and founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, a West African food brand that she started in 2010. Zoe's been pioneering modern West African food in the forms of pop-ups, supper clubs in London, Berlin, and New York, amongst other places, and she had her own restaurant in Brixton. In 2017, she released her cookbook, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, which was just republished and re-released in October. If you go to her website, zoesghanakitchen.com, you can get more info on the book, find recipes, purchase items from her spice line, and learn about her online classes. On the show, we talk about her background, having an Irish mother and a father from Ghana, and how it influenced her cooking. Our conversation revolves primarily around decolonizing the food industry and who should be profiting from African foodways. We talk about gatekeeping and the importance of sharing opportunities and the stage with others, even when it means passing on an incredible opportunity for ourselves. We discuss her podcast, which is called Cooking Up Consciousness, and the upcoming anthology she's editing, Serving Up, Essays on Food, Identity, and Culture. And I asked her if she identified as a cook or a chef and what it means to be a chef these days. It's something I've discussed with a number of people in our community recently. And if you enjoy the episode, I'd love it for you to share it. And if you have something to add to the conversation, DM me on Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants, or you can comment on the episode's post when it goes up. But before we get into that, let's hear from this week's sponsors. As a grits enthusiast, I'm honored to welcome our newest sponsor, Professor Torbert's Orange Corn. I've been buying their products for a couple years now, so I can speak to the awesome quality of these products. Professor Torbert's Orange Corn is the result of its founder's lifelong dedication to improving the world through science and agriculture. Over 20 years ago, Torbert set out to answer a simple but revolutionary question. Can you naturally make corn more nutritious? Could you deliver the benefits of a vegetable through a grain? Today, non-GMO orange corn is helping fight micronutrient deficiencies in more than 10 African countries. The vibrant orange color comes from significantly increased levels of carotenoids. Torbert decided to see what he could do with it here at home. 
To his delight, he found that not only could American's eye health potentially benefit from its higher levels of antioxidant carotenoids, but it also tasted unbelievably good. So when you choose Professor Torbert's, you aren't just saying yes to better flavor. You're also helping deliver better nutrition on a global scale. Tastes good, feels good. All of Professor Torbert's products, grits, cornmeal, and cornflour, are non-GMO, gluten-free, and vegan. All their products are sold online at professortorberts.com, on Amazon, and wholesale. And now through the end of November, Professor Torberts is happy to offer all Chefs Without Restaurants listeners 10% off on all orange corn products. Go to professortorberts.com and simply use the promo code CHEFS10 at checkout. That's C-H-E-F-S-1-0. Did you know restaurants turn over employees four times faster than most businesses? What if somebody created an affordable and effective hiring solution for the restaurant industry? What if there were a job site that only focused on people looking for food service jobs? What if that site only cost $50 a year to advertise for every job your restaurant needed? Forget the big corporate sites like Indeed and Monster. Our sponsor, Savory Jobs, has a job site exclusively for restaurants. The best part is, Savory Jobs only charges $50 for an entire year, and you can post all the jobs you want. And for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVORY10 and get 10% off. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. So go to SavoryJobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the industry. And remember to use SAVORY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Hey, good morning, Zoe. How's it going? Good morning, Chris. I am excellent, and how are you? I'm fantastic. I'm so glad to have you on the show. We've talked a couple times this past year. I think we were in some clubhouse rooms. I've been following you on Instagram. But now I'm really excited to have you uh, here and get my own podcast episode with you. Well, I like to start the show kind of with a bit of your background. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time there, but I think your upbringing is so, you know, pivotal to how you got into food and cooking. So can you start by talking a little bit about your upbringing, maybe your parents, where you grew up, and then kind of how that relates to food and cooking? So my father is Ghanaian and my mother is Irish, and they were both fresh immigrants to the UK in the 70s. Contextually speaking, you know, there was still a lot of signs around London saying no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. So the political climate wasn't the still not the most friendly to immigrants. And um, I grew up in southeast London and, you know, I'm a third culture child, you know, so I was the first English person in my family. And so I, I kind of grew up always feeling like an immigrant and not having a real kind of security or attachment to England. Like it was very weird to me that I didn't really understand what English was. And because Ireland geographically was so close and very cheap to get to at the time, and it still is, I spent a lot of my childhood in Ireland. So, like, you know, all the school holidays and half terms and things like that were always spent in Ireland. So I had this kind of lovely introduction to Irishness and Irish culture, and I knew what that meant and what that part of me was about. And I did not have that in London. Like, there was no Ghanaian family or community around me. Um, and obviously Ghana was much further away and more expensive to get to. And coming from a working class family, that just wasn't possible. Uh, and on top of that, my dad wasn't a very in, a consistent presence in my childhood, which meant I didn't have that very strong connection to him either. So, you know, where does food fit into all of this? Well, the two angles are like on my mum's side as an immigrant my grandmother, my Irish grandmother, used to send her these little lovely care packages, you know, food parcels with gulty cheese and soda bread and red lemonade and all of the good stuff and tato crisps, which we adored and loved and were excited about receiving. But I could see for my mum that that was a very special thing that happened, right? Even it wasn't very far away and she could probably get all of those things in England, to be honest. But it was filled with a lot of nostalgia and love in that moment of receiving those gifts. And for my dad, when he was around, he almost always had food from Ghana with him. So kenke, for example, which is a fermented maize dough, a bit like a tamale type flavor and vibe and texture. Or shito, which is like a traditional hot pepper condiment made with smoked fishes. And then there's just a variety of different textures, flavors and smells and what he was doing. But he was very kind of focused initially on cooking that for himself. So it was a really solitary moment where he would just be cooking this food. 
And I was a very curious child, generally. And so I got curious about this food and the flavours. And I kind of could see that when he was cooking, the same thing was happening for him, like it was taking him home to Accra. And when I kind of caught on to that, I was like, oh, wait, this is how I can connect to Ghana, right, through the through the food. So I guess that's the most important part of all of this, is that there's a certain politics that informs my relationship with food and my identity, but also using food as a tool to be attached to my culture and my heritage and my ancestry became super, super important. And so I learned to cook kind of by osmosis, if you like, through him. And as a latchkey kid, it was the 80s. I'm in my 40s. You know, so I would cook for myself and eventually other latchkey kids in my <laughs> council estate, you know, would come for dinner at mine. And most more often than not, I would be cooking groundnut soup, which is this really famous dish from West Africa. Uh, we called it peanut butter stew in my house because um, just because it has so much peanut butter. And it's this delicious, beautiful dish. And even now for me, that dish, I love to cook. It's my favorite thing to cook still. And it's my favorite thing to eat still from anywhere in the world because it is just filled with that nostalgia and love and it feels like um first of all the flavor is amazing because you have this piquancy this balance of sweet and spicy and it's just a beautiful combination of flavors but also just in the eating of it it really feels like you're enveloped with love like there's a hug the food is hugging you <laughs> while you're eating it yeah so I guess that kind of summarizes why food has become a pivotal part of my career before food I did many other things but I mean that's another story how I got into food but maybe you'll ask me about that <laughs> we do talk so much on the podcast about like nostalgia and nostalgic foods and you know it's really hard when you become a professional chef because does that food mean anything to your customers right like there's things I'm very nostalgic about that I get really excited about and I might serve to my customers and they're just like, you know, what's this? Uh, you know, similarly, like I'm from the Boston area and we have baked beans. Like it's, you know, so many people just open a can of Bush's baked beans. But like for me, it was something my great grandmother made and it was from like her great grandmother. And I would love to cook that for people. But I'm always afraid that someone's just gonna be like, what? It's just like a bowl of baked beans with like some pork in it. But for me, it's it's very different. And it sounds like the the ground nuts do. It's the same with you. Is that is that kind of like a gateway recipe? Like when you wanted to teach someone Ghana food, like what's the first thing if they had your cookbook, if they've never had it, what would you recommend them making? Ooh, I mean, I think there's two types of people that this audience is going to reach, right? So there's going to be the diaspora who may or may not already have a relationship with West African cuisine or Ghanaian food in particular. Um, and so for them, I think it's really fun to go to the recipes that you grew up eating. So probably groundnut is one of those. Red, red would probably be one of those. Jollof, obviously. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people within the culture grow up also not learning how to cook the food because there isn't this long history of that being a thing, teaching people how to cook. And also, usually those recipes are passed down orally or just by sight, sound and touch. So many people won't have a written reference for a lot of the recipes they grew up eating. So this will be a nice kind of guide. And then there's this other audience who probably have never maybe heard of Ghanaian food before or ingredients and are just adventurous eaters and adventurous cooks or just want to explore, you know. And for those people, it's really I've made it as I try to be as educational, I suppose, as possible about what the ingredients are. So there's this lovely kind of index at the beginning that talks about the spices. It talks about the staples, such as the, the yams, not sweet potatoes, actual yam. The variants in plantain, like a lot of people will be familiar with plantain as an ingredient in the States, but maybe not so familiar with the process of what happens to a plantain of from it falling off the branch to it's becoming extremely ripe and that there's a hundred ways to cook a plantain in between uh, zero and a hundred, depending on its ripeness and structure. So I give all of these guides. Um, and then there's a cheat sheet at the back, which is like, you know, your staples in terms of your spice blends, like your jollof seasoning, the kelawele seasoning, suya seasoning, for example. And then there's this handy, handy recipe for something called chale sauce, which is it kind of combines all of the elements of core flavors to more than 50% of the dishes that would be considered traditional. So more of your soups and stew based things like that. But that kind of um, short handy recipe you can use for okra soup, you can use for uh, groundnut soup, you can use for jollof. And 
lots and lots of things. So I don't want to tell people go to this recipe first. I would suggest read about the ingredients and the flavors and go with what speaks to you, right? Because I think everybody has to, as recipe writers and cookbook writers, we have to invite the audience in a little bit and not presume too much. But I've just tried to make it as accessible as possible without watering down, I suppose, or also the opposite of that, without being too didactic about it either, because we have to give space for nuance and interpretation and for people to be able to use what they have available to them, you know. So I don't like to tell people you should try this, but there are definitely some really easy recipes like red, red, all day, easy recipe. It's just a bean stew, essentially. The ground nut is a really easy one pot dish that anybody can make. It just requires that you have fun while you're cooking it in order for it to taste good. And, you know, so many, even the jollof recipe is um, pretty straightforward. And those kind of dishes are the, like, I, I think they've been staples on my menus at restaurants and supper clubs and wherever I've been in the world for such a long time. And they're always the, the most loved recipes that people can connect with. So probably would be saying start there. Yeah. Well, and now it's kind of like finding the balance, I guess, between quote unquote authentic, but then accessible, right? Like, mm. do you think about that when you're writing a book, you know, as someone who's never, like, my, personally, I've never had the food really cooked with the, um, these recipes, how easy is it for me to find ingredients here in the US? I mean, I know you can buy specialty things on Amazon, but, you know, so when you're writing a cookbook, are you thinking about, well, this is how it would be traditionally made? But knowing that a lot of people might not have access to the ingredients like here are substitutes, like, are you thinking about that as you're writing the book? And, I, and I've and i looked, you know, I have the book, so I've kind of seen where it says, like, you can use cayenne here or something like that, you know, if you don't have access to this. You know, the this is a fourth edition of the book. And I wrote this book um, originally in 2014. When I wrote it originally, there was a lot less accessibility in terms of these ingredients and the the publishing industry as a rule at the time were very cautious about talking about ingredients that people would think are hard to find. And so the first edition of the book, there was a lot of heavy substitutions and a lot of omissions in terms of things like Dawa Dawa probably didn't crop up very often in the recipes and uh, grains of Salem because they were very esoteric at the time. Uh, However, this edition of the book I was really excited to get back into it because over that time between its publication in 2017 and now, I as a cook have grown and developed. I as a food writer have grown and developed. But also my political consciousness and my assertive voice as a cook in the world has also grown and developed. So I actually, um, I don't know if this is (laughs) the wrong thing to say, when you're trying to sell a cookbook, but I actually put back in a lot of what I had taken out in 2017 because I really wanted people to have the truest experience of these recipes. Now, of course, there are suggestions for substitutions there because it's not going to be easy for um, for everybody. You know, I don't know how accessible these things are in the Midwest, for example, but there is a much more expansive availability online and not just Amazon. I mean, I have my own spice shop, Zoe'sGarnerKitchen.com, where I purposefully built a channel where people could could bridge the gap in that accessibility, right? So, yes, because I want people to to use it, there are substitutions. But I also want people to be mindful that if you, you know, when you go overboard with the substitutions, you're kind of losing something, right? It's still going to taste delicious, but it's not going to be the same. And so if you want the most authentic relationship with the cuisine, it's like, yeah, you're going to have to Google where you're going to buy that or just come to my website and get it from me. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's more important to me that people, as I said, this isn't a Bible of this is Ghanaian food. This is very much my evocation and celebration of these recipes and flavors and ingredients more than anything else. And it's, it's that I want people to have a relationship with. So I'm really kind of encouraging people to go out of their comfort zone a little bit and try those ingredients, try Dawa Dawa, try Grains of Paradise, try Grains of Salem and those spice blends, because while you're going to have a great time making these dishes as authentically as possible, you're also going to be able to use those flavors and ingredients and other things and just bring in 
the flavour of West Africa generally into your pantry and your cooking style and embolden your food, you know, make it more vibrant. So what's your take on fusion cooking? I mean, you know, I know it's like a word that I even feel seems dated, but like using those, you know, kind of remixing those dishes. What are your thoughts? I know fusion is such an unfortunate and ugly word, isn't it? And I had the real distrust of it. Uh, for the longest time back in the UK, when people were trying to apply that to my more modern interpretations of uh, this cuisine. Um, How do I feel about it now? I think, hmm, I think it's still clumsy fusion because I think what I'm doing isn't fusing so much as reimagining. So it's for me, you know, there, is, there isn't a canon of West African cuisine yet. It's starting to develop now, right? We're starting to see more writers in this space, more cookbooks in this space, which I welcome and love. But in the absence of that canon, I think we have to acknowledge what is traditional, big air quotes around that, because tradition changes from house to house. But we do have to go back what it, to what is or as close to as what as we can consider as authentic as possible, which is why I made that trip back to Ghana in 2013 to research this book. However, from doing that, I came back, I got a lot of license from the knowledge I gained there about just how differently people approach these recipes from region to region or from household to household. So with all this knowledge that I have about that, that's what I try to bring to talking about food and teaching people about this cuisine. Um, and I think I've probably lost what the original question was because I'm waffling a little bit. So remind me again what your actual question was. Just how you feel about fusion. Look, there are definitely cuisines where they are fused. Like I've had them definitely. Like New York is full of fusion cuisine, right? It's like China meets Savannah and you know, Tokyo meets Mexico. And they work really well. And I have no problem with that. But I'm not really fusing any. There is one section in the cookbook which might be regarded as fusion, right? I have a section called Ghana Get Irish, um, where I'm celebrating some Irish flavors and ingredients alongside Ghanaian flavors. Now, that is fusion because I'm deliberately telling you this is what's happening. I'm bringing in Ireland and I'm bringing in Ghana together to create this new version of a thing. Um, So that's fusion and that's okay. Everything else, and there's a lot of modern... What the twists are, it's also a clumsy word, twists, but, you know, it's really about me thinking, okay, we have these amazing flavors and ingredients. This is what normally happens to them, but what else can we do with them? Like, how else can we experience Ghanaian food in new ways? And that's really what that is. It's a reimagining of traditional ideas and also just new ideas on how to use the ingredients and how to bring those flavors into your your life without it being too time-consuming or laborsome or intimidating. Yeah. We jumped over a whole bunch of your stuff. So I want to go back a little bit to, I guess, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. What is Zoe's Ghana Kitchen? What have you done under that label? And kind of how did that start? Yeah, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen is a brand, it's a West African brand that um, I started in 2010 I suppose and it was the first contemporary West African food concept in the UK Um, and it started outside my front door (laughs) with a borrowed pot in which I made this big vat essentially of groundnut soup for an over the course of a weekend where there was a festival in my neighborhood and that's how it started. And from that moment in time, which was really just me being opportunistic to make some cash because I was a bit skim back in 2010. And from this moment, it created this wonderful like social gathering outside my front door. But it also all of these questions were coming up around what the dish was, where it was from. A lot of people didn't know where Ghana was, hadn't heard of it, didn't know where it was on a map. Uh, and there were a huge number of ridiculous stereotypes people had you know things like this assumption about eat like bush meat being the only thing we ate and lots of uh, notions about it being unhealthy and yada 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 so all of these questions were presented that in 2010 were like lodged in my subconscious but not ones really that I felt 
was my job to answer for people because um, it wasn't the trajectory I was going on at the time. I was doing an MA in creative writing and that was where my focus was, was that. However, because it was so fun, like I had a lot of fun feeding people, I decided to turn my house into a restaurant, essentially. So then it became the space for a pop-up restaurant and I would suddenly be turning over 60 covers twice a night or one weekend doing like five or 600 covers and then that turned into me doing catering and street food and all these other arms and pub residencies. And then eventually I had a restaurant myself in Brixton and the book, the, the cookbook came out as well. And it's basically been like this project, I suppose, which I decided that because I've got so much buzz so quickly and this business, this brand grew organically, extreme, I can't tell you how quickly it just you know rocketed off really without me and I was kind of being dragged behind it um but when I decided when I could sort of paid attention and listen to the universe instead of fighting it all the time I was like okay this needs to exist and so why like why does this need to exist and it was clear to me that people didn't have a relationship with that cuisine outside of the diaspora outside of the communities which cooked it inherently and all of the amazing restaurants that did exist in London and across the UK, and there were hundreds, were all kind of mom and pop shops. And they were places where the community went to eat and they weren't necessarily concerned with inviting anybody else in. So I suppose I created the brand Zoe's Garner Kitchen, created this bridge, if you like, between, between those cultures and trying to platform this cuisine in a new way that would put it on the same footing as Mexican food or any other world cuisine in London. And so it became about bringing African food to the masses, in air quotes. And that was the mission statement. And that's why I did so many different types and styles of cooking, because all I was thinking about is you've got to get it to as many people as possible. Right. And so, yeah, like catering weddings, catering corporate events, going to festivals where you're serving thousands of people over a weekend and then you know, doing residencies all over the country and across Europe and supper clubs so any available way that you could serve food I found a way to do it and that yeah that's where we are now and now Zoe's Ghana Kitchen presently as a consequence of the pandemic kind of killing most aspects of my business because it was so focused on events um, we're now operating as an online spice shop so as I mentioned earlier like I wanted to close the gap between people's access to the ingredients and I wanted to be able to write recipes where I didn't have to substitute the ingredients and people had somewhere they could trust to buy it from and also to be able to educate people not just on that the ingredients but on supply chain issues and like the wider concerns around the growing and selling of these ingredients and why it's you know why being mindful of supply chain matters and why being mindful of a wider ecosystem around your food matters. So I guess, you know, Ghana Kitchen continues to be a West African food brand. What it will be in 10 years, I don't know. <laughs> well, what do you want it to be? Let's say next year, 2022, COVID has kind of leveled off. We can go back to indoor dining, events, gathering. What do you what do you want to be doing as soon as you can do whatever you want? Well, if I had the investors tomorrow, I would make Ghana Kitchen a neighborhood restaurant with a grocery store attached to it. And in that grocery store, you'd be able to buy cookbooks from across the African continent and you'd be able to buy the ingredients from across as many parts of um, West Africa as possible. And you'd be able to have affordable, good food, you know, Um I'd be really happy with that. A small 40-seater, you know, neighborhood place where people came and learned about food and had and celebrated food and had a great time, you know. It might have a little dive bar beneath it as well. <laughs> I'd show up for sure. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> How do you identify? Do you identify as a chef, as a cook? I know we've talked about this a little uh, yeah. before in other places, and, and I guess to add on to that, what does it mean to be a chef these days? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And you know what? I change my mind about it almost all the time lately. Like when I when I got into food, I don't have a culinary back. Like I'm not culinary trained. I didn't 
come up through hospitality in the same way that most people have in the food industry. I very much went out on my own and did my own thing. And I'm very happy to have done it that way, honestly. And so I, I was never concerned with the label chef or cook, like I was just doing it. So the label didn't become important to me until other people were applying it. And then, yeah, the question consistently in my early years was like, are you a chef or a cook? Are you? And I honestly couldn't understand why it was so important for people. And I was very happy to be called either or. And I was more comfortable, I suppose, once I got into like hospitality as an industry, I was more comfortable initially being called a cook because it's like, well, I haven't done that path in that route, right? So I'm not sure that it really applies to me. But also, I don't think I understood then the weight of the word. Do you know what I mean? Like how much credibility it might give you suddenly or all of this stuff. Anyway, so fast forward, I don't know, let's say I've cooked maybe, I don't know, 100,000 meals at this point over the course of like eight or nine years. And then it was like, actually, yeah, I'm a chef. Like I've run a restaurant. I run a food business. I have a catering. Like, you know, I'm feeding people professionally for a living uh, and teaching other people how to feed people professionally for a living. I'm running a kitchen. So, yeah, I'm a chef. And so I felt comfortable then to wear that as a new coat. But even now, like recently, and I know we talked about this with um, Jenny Dorsey did a panel on Clubhouse about it. And then it became like this friction of me asserting myself as a chef because the industry didn't want me to assert myself as a chef, right? So then it became about pushing back on the kind of hierarchy in food and who gets to be equipped with what sense of value about what they do. But right now, I honestly couldn't give a flying F whether anybody calls me a chef or a cook. I just honestly couldn't. But having said that, because of that conversation with Jenny Dorsey and she's saying that when she put the word chef in front of her name on her email signature, she suddenly received a different tone and a different kind of interaction from potential clients and things. And I took the advice. And so I've changed on my email and on my Instagram to say Chef Zoe Ujonia so people know immediately that that's what I do. But I could lose that tomorrow and I wouldn't lose a bit of sleep about it. You know, it's like it's just become a, a label that kind of doesn't it isn't important to me. And right now, technically, I'm not running a restaurant and I'm not running any catering and I'm not I'm not in the profession of being a chef so much. You know, I mean, I, I teach online and I teach in person and I do demos and stuff like that, but I'm not selling food and I'm not um, you know, in the industry of selling food right now. So it's kind of neither here nor there for me you know I'm a food person I love to cook and if you want to call me a chef great and if you don't I don't give a (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you no you know like I'm a personal chef now I have a culinary degree you know just five years ago I was running a huge kitchen with hundreds of employees but I had a guy come on my Instagram a couple weeks ago and say if you don't have a team under you that you're leading you're not a chef you can call yourself something else and you know (laughs) I, again, some troll, right? Like, I don't care either way about this guy's opinion, but it was a really interesting conversation. And he went so far as to start harassing everyone in my community, like going on their Instagrams and DMing them and being like really arrogant and rude about the fact that like chef literally means to lead a team in a kitchen. And if you are a solopreneur or not doing that, find a new word. And I just, I thought it was so funny, like, how does it affect this guy, right? Like we're on opposite sides of the country. (laughs) Like if I call myself a a chef, like, does it matter? Like, I don't understand why people get so tied up in these things of how other people identify. It's just really interesting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I know we were part of this conversation this summer with Jenny. I thought it was interesting, but I know people always change their minds. So I thought I'd just kind of see where you are these days. I I change all the time. Like I've, I've never had anyone call me chef, like in the kitchen, I didn't want my cooks to say chef. I'm Chris. Just, hey, hey, Chris, can yeah. you help me out here? I was not a yes chef, no chef guy. It was like, I still don't even feel comfortable with it. But if someone says, what do you do? I say, I'm a chef, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's easier, right? It's also, it's just the handy label. Like, sometimes labels are really cumbersome. And, and this word is, it can be cumbersome and heavy and loaded and create rage for people when they think it's misappropriated. But it also it's just easy in conversation to be like what do you do yeah I'm a chef and a writer and 
everything else, multi-hyphenate human that I am. Um, but it tends to come first because that's what I've done for the longest time most recently, you know. I don't know. I mean, I tried to wear that Yes Chef bit for a minute because I thought, oh, how? Because also, like, when you <laughs> as someone who hasn't been through that whole process and in that uh the brigade system and all of that there was a period of time like a short period of time when I thought maybe I need to be more like that in order to get this kitchen team motivated and yada yada but it didn't last for very long you know it's like because it because it just feels like so much it feels so false to me and who I am to have that kind of uh you know I don't even wear whites when I cook like do you know what I mean it's like I'm Zoe you can call me Chef Zoe if you want, but you can also call me Zoe, you know. So, yeah, I don't really, I, I just the whole hierarchy thing and the aggressiveness that comes with how you then assert yourself in the kitchen. Like none of that was ever very attractive to me. So I suppose like off camera, off the record I think we're on the record right now. But I mean, in life, I'm probably just more comfortable just being Zoe who cooks. But I understand that for the industry uh, and for recognition in the industry, they need a label that means something. So I use the label that if I need to, for it to mean something for them more than it means to me. Does that make sense? It definitely does. Again, it's just especially an easy conversation. I think a general person who's not in the industry understands, right? Like you're at a party and someone says, what do you do? I'm a chef. Like they get it right away. You know, you don't need to go through this big, long thing of like what you actually do. You can just say, I'm a chef. We're overthinking it too much. This could be a very deep thing and I'm leaving it a little broad, but like in general, what are your thoughts on the state of the food industry right now? And that could be like anything. I just kind of want to like, what are you spending time thinking about? What are some of your concerns? Where do you think we're getting it right? Like, do you have any, I'm sure you have thoughts because I know you talk about the food industry all the time, but is there anything right now that is really important to you? God, there's so much right now. (laughs) It's such a big question. Um, you know, like a lot of my whole concern as regards to the food industry is around this theme of decolonizing it, decolonizing the food industry and trying to unpack for people what that means and define it. Um, there's so many, like the food system overall is, gosh, it's in trouble, right? Like, there's so many parts of it that are in trouble, whether we're thinking about how the hospitality industry operates, how the workers in that system are seen, heard, acknowledged, valued, paid. You know, you can't consider that without thinking about then who the suppliers are to right, to restaurants and hospitality. And then the concerns around supply chains and the concerns about sustainability and agriculture and biodiversity. And these are all still ongoing large, large issues and problems that we're only just kind of scratching the surface of talking about, let alone really addressing. And then mental health, right? And how do we all work in a capitalist structure without killing ourselves (laughs) to survive and cultural appropriation I think my biggest headache with food is that topic is cultural appropriation it's probably the bit I am most passionate about but also increasingly I fear and it's I feel sad to say this actually it's the least likely battle to be won (laughs) because there is this ever expansive global cuisine, right? Which I'm not against actually, right? Because bringing in the flavors of the world is what I'm part of doing is what I do is that I'm encouraging people to do that on one level. Right. But there is this really specific notion about who gets to benefit when they write about food, when they develop an ingredient or you know something for a shelf in a supermarket, 
who are the people who are being excluded and who are the people who are benefiting? It honestly feels like the tidal flow against what I'm trying to say about that is so big and so overwhelming that it's almost impossible to counter at this point because how do you take on Trader Joe's? How do you take on, you know what I mean? It's like they're all doing it now. And once they've started, why would they stop? Because they know, right? People like me and you know many, many others in this food space have been talking about West African food and West African cuisine for years and years and years and years. Hello, 12 years counting. And to be completely and often dismissed, me in the UK, when I've spoken to R&D companies at supermarkets and they're like, oh, West African food isn't a thing. It's not trending. It's not going to cross over. And now they're all putting out, right, their own versions of a jollof sauce or a suya blend. And as are white, famous male chefs putting it in their cookbooks. Some of them don't even know that they've got this recipe in their cookbooks. They don't actually write the fucking cookbook. And um, it's just this huge tide which is counter to what I believe and I believe that chefs and the food industry need to start respecting the cultures that these ingredients and flavors and recipes come from and decolonizing the food industry how can you right how can you even decolonize the industry when we're perpetually in neocolonialism you know what I mean it's like it's such a hard battle to fight and yet I'm still here (laughs) trying to fight it so I think that is my biggest concern is I'm still concerned about the colonizing of cultures for them for purposes of profit over people's uh, inclusion and the possibility for them to actually benefit from their own culture and nobody really cares about your food until it becomes popular. And then, you know, it's like, it's just interesting. My best friend's Filipino, and we went to culinary school together. And, you know, 20 years ago, we're talking about it. And he said, you know, nobody's ever going to go out to Filipino food. It's too weird. It's not mainstream, you know. And then Filipino f- people wouldn't go out for it because they're just going to make it at home. And now you look, it's mm. like one of the hot cuisines, right? And it's not always necessarily like Filipino people opening these restaurants. And the same with any of those cuisines. Like we go through the the flavor of the week and once something hits for whatever reason, it seems like everyone jumps on board and then you've got it starting to spread everywhere. And that's great if you're someone who grew up with the cuisine and this is something you're passionate about. I don't know that I should be opening a Ghanaian restaurant here in Maryland, but um, you <laughs> please <know>. don't. <laughs> Actually, please do if you're going to hire like a Ghanaian head chef and your staff are going to be West African and, you know, you're going to run a restaurant model where they get equity out of this concept, you know, like then, yeah, do it. (laughs) Yeah, but I shouldn't be the head chef for that or write a Ghanaian cookbook. No, definitely not. No, I mean, and that's the thing. I think it's I think people are starting to be more sensitive to this concept, this idea but there is such a long way to go with it. Sometimes it does feel defeating. You know, it's like it's such a huge wave to um, constantly swim against. But, you know, we have to, right? If we don't talk about it, if we don't highlight it, if we don't flag it when it's happening, then we're kind of participating in it. And I think, you know, my conscious just doesn't allow me to do that. Any, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I have to... Even if the greater task, which is to decolonize the food industry, it's probably going to take 500 years to get us back to zero on that, right? And the reality is we, we can't ever go back to zero because we all speak English. Like, and, you know, we all, <laughs> it's already happened. Like, and some of it you can't reverse. However, if we're, not, if we're not participating in discussions about how to unpick parts of it, it's never going to begin. Like the process will never start and we'll never get, to any kind of level playing field. So I think you and I, and we've been in conversations and people like us who care about the food industry and care about the people in it. And as I say, that that's from, you know, the, the home cook in, I don't know, Ohio to the immigrant in New York. All of these people, they need other people to help them have space right and we i i suppose could now be considered some kind of a gatekeeper right because i have a certain amount of profile and yada yada so 
I have a responsibility to show them that they are valuable, their voice and opinion does matter, and that there are people in the world who are working to fight for their right to exist in these spaces and to be able to financially thrive off of their concepts, ideas, words, and um, the work they do to uplift and share their culture. For me, it's like the long, good fight. You know, it's like all of this stuff, every conversation might be a micro chip, literally, um, at a massive rock, but we have to chip and, you know, eventually we'll get somewhere. And I think about, you know, me personally, how I can both use my platform, but also opportunities to, I don't know, help the the bigger picture. You know, I didn't really think about this stuff growing up. Uh, you know, I went to culinary school and just wanted to be a cook and a chef. But, you know, looking back at things like um, Star Chefs has had me come to their conference in New York and write editorials about their workshops. And a couple of years ago, they asked me to write uh, about Eduardo Jordan's and I went and I did it and it was on chitlins. And, you know, he's that's a whole nother thing there. But, um, you know, I didn't grow up eating chitlins. It's not from my background and my culture. And was I the best choice for that? You know, in hindsight, probably not. But, you know, I was given this opportunity. It was amazing. I, You know, it was a chance for me to show my professional writing and do some cool stuff. But today... I would like to think that I would maybe say, like, uh, I'm not the best person for this. Is there an African-American person, someone who grew up eating that? Like, I had literally no ties to that. You know, I think I did a good job. But for me, that's kind of where I'm at, is kind of thinking about where I sit in the bigger picture of things and sharing maybe opportunities as best I can with other people. I mean, yes, and that's a beautiful start and that's a beautiful position. And I wish more chefs would be like that and not, not just chefs, food writers and whoever else is involved in this funny old game. But you know, even I have to do that. And it's like, you know, in the UK I became like the spokesperson for West African food or like the um the leading voice for that. And increasingly it became uncomfortable because it meant that I was now being the only black face talking about this stuff. Right. And for me, it was like the moments where you introduce somebody else into that conversation, in the UK anyway, what would happen is there just wouldn't be space for two voices. So one of you gets paid and one of you doesn't, right? So then it's, it's about survival, you know. And so that had an impact on how much you can bring up other people, as they say. But you know, as I said, in more recent years, in like the last three or four years, I've kind of made it my agenda to, even if I am broke, like even if there's, you know, I'm lucky as well. I, I can write about a lot of different things, not just food. I can write about politics. I can write about yada, yada. But perhaps there's somebody, like recently today's show asked me to write something about a really specific thing like Kanzo, which is like the burnt rice on the bottom of a, um, rice right just considered a delicacy in Ghana and it's like yeah I know about that um but I'm not the best person to write about it actually because I don't cook like that particular thing has never been in my uh repertoire my armory like I wasn't taught about it to make it it wasn't something I ate growing up and so I recommended somebody else I knew who was more into the very traditional you know in order to give them an opportunity to talk about that with the passion and integrity that they have about it. If I had written about it, I would have done a good job, right? I would have been educational about the, the topic, but I know that it's not my, it wouldn't be my true experience of it. So I don't want to lie either. And I don't want to take up space on a topic because as niche as people think Ghanaian food is, it's an expansive culinary <laughs> range right not just but Ghana is a big country it's not as big as America but it's a huge country and you know the UK could probably fit into Ghana I don't know 30 times and there's such a variance in the landscape uh, between tribes between regions and traditions and I certainly don't know about everything that's available to a person in Ghana in terms of diet I'm constantly learning and I have to know that and acknowledge it and step out of the way when there's people that know more than me and even step out in the way sometimes when it's not about them knowing more than me, it's about they need an opportunity. Some people 
just need an opportunity. And sometimes I'm able to provide that without a cost to me, right? I think here's the new balance. It's like balancing the opportunities you give yourself against opportunities you create and give to other people in a way that we're where we can all thrive and we don't have to feel like we're in competition with each other. Because this is the other problem that the industry can create for communities like mine is it pits us against each other in terms of because of oftentimes there isn't space for more than one voice on a topic or a type of cuisine and there isn't more space for a number of writers to talk about the same kind of ingredients through different lens you know and you know I'm going to be honest here actually I've even recently found myself withdrawing a bit like I have a column for today on the ingredients of West Africa and um, a friend of mine Yuande also has a column a much more fancy column for the New York Times and I've noticed that she's started writing about those ingredients and I kind of started withdrawing a bit thinking like oh I don't want to be writing about the same things as that person because I don't want us to to like be in competition about it. And then it's like, and so many people have just said to me recently, it's like, well, don't forget, like you have your own perspective on it. And I had to be reminded from other people, right? It's like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I can write about this at the same time as somebody else writing about this, like because I have a completely different lens and experience and perspective and voice. So it's I don't know it's constant work trying to balance it all to to make space create space not take up too much space but be visible enough to be inspirational right and do the work that you need to do and get paid it's a constant challenge yeah with the podcast I mean I have a lot of guests who are on other shows but we all come at it from different vantages different experience I try to listen to previous podcasts that they've been on so as to not repeat the same thing over and over and just kind of how can we put a different spin on this? How can we have a completely different conversation? Um, mm. You know, you've been a guest on a lot of podcasts. You, you know, you also host your own video series. I see you do these long videos on Instagram. You've covered so much ground already. So how do we have a conversation that's still slightly different? Yeah. I mean, Dana, I just recently did Dana Cowan's podcast, but um, I always try to make each conversation different because I always try to, and it was Dana that pointed this out to me because she'd done a lot of research before she did the podcast with me. And she'd noted that as many times as I've been interviewed, I don't give the same interview twice. And I try not to because, in fact, I'm not really trying. It's because I come to it that I'm talking to a new person every time, right? And I don't know what that person or their audience know about me my background, my relationship with food or any of the other things I do. And I do a lot of other things. So I can pull out of quite a large pot in conversation. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I do think it's important to be able to, yeah, to be able to do that, to have consistently have conversations with your community and people outside of your community without competition being the basis of engagement. You know what I mean? It's like about that, like working collaboratively is really at my core it's a weird thing to say, but sometimes I feel like that's what I was born to do is to be a collaborator, like a co-creator. Like I can do stuff on my own and I do, but when I'm doing stuff, if I have an idea where it brings a lot of people together, like the energy and the inspiration that gives me like fires me up so much more than when I'm doing something on my own. Yeah. I just think intrinsically I'm built to collaborate and I'm built to collaborate around big ideas where the more people who benefit, the better. Oh, me too. I love collaboration. I mean, right now the podcast is a solo thing and my business is a solo thing, but I really need to figure out how to bring more people into the mix. And you have a podcast too, right? I do. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Uh, my, my podcast is called Cooking Up Consciousness. And the motivation for me creating it was my fascination, I suppose, with people's journeys and who people are and how how they come to be who they are right because we have these vast myriads of experiences where like you just said like you try to collaborate and but then trust is broken or it's not the right fit or and just people have amazing journeys behind what they do that people don't see right because people think everybody's an overnight success um doesn't matter that you spent 12 years like in the coal mines or 20 years in the coal mines and then somebody gives you a book deal right and I wanted to share 
because so often people say to me, oh, you're so inspirational, you're so this, how do you do it? To me, I'm like, I don't know what you mean, really, because I'm just being me, you know? I don't know how I do it. (laughs) I'm just living. But I've been through this process of unpacking, okay, yeah, what, how, what is my motivation? What makes me tick? And what has been my journey to, to, to now? What have been the pitfalls? What have been the successes? What no's were really a great yes later on? And what yeses were I should not have taken? You know what I mean? And I think sometimes people can get a lot from understanding people's background and people's journeys so that they feel better about themselves and where they are. And so I wanted it to be like that, like this kind of tool to help people understand that wherever you are in the world right now, it's absolutely fine because you're in a journey, like it's a process and we all get there in the end, as long as we believe in ourselves and have faith in ourselves and trust ourselves, which is not an easy thing to do. But I guess that was, you know, in it's a bit esoteric, I suppose. But some of it, as I'm talking to people in the food community, obviously, people like Preeti Mystery and Rima Sell, who are clear inspirations around what they do and talk about, but also people who aren't in food necessarily, but who I find to be inspirational characters or have inspirational careers or stories behind their careers. Um, so it's a lot of like triumph over adversity, I suppose, and hoping, hoping to motivate and inspire people a little bit. Well, I think the inspiration is because you come off as so authentic and honest, and it's unfortunate that that seems like a rarity these days, right? But <laughs> like you, you tackle some of the big issues head on. Um, it doesn't seem like you are someone who has trouble telling it like it is, but also in a way that's you know clear and comes from a point of view and not necessarily aggressive. You know, I I really love listening to you talk about things that I've never even thought about, and the way that you can verbalize that in, you know, like an easy to understand way and just kind of, but like trying to get at the root of an issue. Does that make sense? Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. Um, It means a lot. But yeah, again, you know, I think it's just, I don't know that I have that much control over it. It's kind of whoever I am now is a consequence of the process I've been through for living. You know what I mean? Like, um, there are like touch points, like, like I said, like politics and social justice are just ingrained in me. And whenever I see injustice, I'm going to tell somebody about it. I'm going to shout it out. And it doesn't matter whether it's food or anything. It's like, this is not OK. Right. This is our planet. We're all humans on this planet. We all deserve to be here. and We all deserve equal love, attention and guidance and success and whatever our hearts dream of. We all deserve it. And so when I see people being oppressed or any injustice, it's just like it's just natural for me to want to sh- talk about it or do something to change it. And look, I'm not fucking perfect. Like I've been my I've had a roller coaster of a life. But I think just all of my experience in the world feeds into, you know, what I say and how I say it. And I suppose I've become increasingly fearless. You know, I think there's a real power in letting go of being scared to be yourself. That's the big thing. It's like, that's what I want for everyone, honestly, is to be able to be really comfortable being yourself because this is what I do all day. I'm just being myself. I'm not pretending. I'm not lying. I'm not hiding anything. Probably some stuff I should hide, honestly. But I'm an open book. And um, I think that's probably why people gravitate to me is because they can see I'm not. There's no filter. Like, you know, it's like this is what you see is what you get. And what I, if I'm talking about it, it's because I care about it. I don't have small talk. It's not available to me. <laughs> and helping other people be more open and honest and, and sharing. And I guess that kind of also transitions into a little bit. You have another book, Serving Up. Uh, coming out soon that you're working on right now. Uh, you're doing a kind of crowdfunding, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank you again for mentioning that. Um, yeah, so Serving Up is an anthology of food writing from mostly persons of color, mostly women, but it's a collection of voices in food that I don't think ever. Well, look, we've already talked about this. There is a real lack of diversity in food writing, right? And so I've been gifted with the opportunity to curate and edit a collection of 
uh, essays and voices in food. And because, again, of who I am and how I operate in the world, I really want to have that be an internationally connected anthology because all of our stories are important and there's just not enough places for them to be platformed, you know. So I've got a really gorgeous collection of people from A. Passard to Hassel, uh, Vils, uh, Pretty Mysteries in there, Remus Vils in there, Ashton Berry is going to be in there, Crystal Mack, uh, Apur, um, Abigail Spooner. It's a really, really diverse collection of voices with very, very, very niche perspectives sometimes, right? that don't get enough space in printed books. I mean, a lot of people have a Substack or a newsletter these days, and that's amazing and good, and we need that, and I'm not, they should exist, and they're very important. But also, wouldn't it be nice to go to a bookshop and have books that have these voices in there from all over the world? And I don't know, I just think we need more of that, because I think the more we realise how similar our stories are across our experiences are, the more connected we can be, right? The more we can see each other in each other's experiences, the more we can be in relationship and therefore everything just becomes more easier. I mean, I'm not trying to say that like books like this bring world peace because they don't, but they give an opportunity to platform voices that would otherwise perhaps not get the platform. And it gives the opportunity for somebody in, I don't know, a small town in Utah who's in, from an immigrant family having this specific experience to recognize and see themselves being reflected, you know. And we can't, you know, the whole the old adage is still true. You can't be what you can't see. You need to, this is a really good example that is often quoted by like motivational speakers and stuff, but you know, the four minute mile, right? When Andrew, is it Andrew Bannerman? When he broke the four-minute mile, like it hadn't been done before. People thought it was impossible. The minute he did it, it was broken 20 times in like two months because people could see that it was possible so they could do it. And you can't be what you can't see. Sometimes, and I had that growing up, and I don't want that for anybody else growing up. You know, I want to see, I want everybody to know what's available to them, and it's everything. Everything is available to you. It doesn't matter what colour you are, where you come from, what your gender is what your sexual orientation is, like everything is available to you. Your voice is in the world, an important voice. And that's why I'm crowdfunding this book. And I'm still kind of old school in that I love a book. Like you can read amazing things online. I feel like it doesn't hold my attention. Like there's something about having a book in your hands and just sitting down on the couch and like going through it. And I feel like it's something that's going to be around for eternity, like once the book is out in the world. So I'm super excited. I think the book... Sounds really awesome. Crystal Mack was one of my first, I want to say like five podcast guests um, that I had on the show. Like we had just started and what, I mean, we talked for over two hours and we did it in the same day in the same studio. Um, Kat from Just Call Me Chef. We did it the same Mm. day. So talk about conversations. We had like Crystal right into her. I talked for like four hours to the two of them. What an amazing day of conversations. It took me so long to kind of unpack that and go through everything we had talked about coming out of a studio in in four hours back when I used to do uh, in-person interviews. Such a great day. So yeah, I love, uh, you know, Crystal's amazing. Kat's amazing. But all these people have different perspectives on food. I love um, Mm -hmm. anytime that, you know, I see their work out there and people sharing their, their voice and work. The same thing happened with me and Crystal, actually. We were supposed to be trying to catch up for like an editorial meeting for a long time and when we eventually did we spoke for two hours before we started talking about her essay (laughs) Um, and I'm a talker so (laughs) yeah she's yeah I mean I'm so happy that all of the people who agreed to participate have you know said yes because all these people are trying to earn a living as well right and that's the other part of this is it's really hard and you know the the budget I could get to pay them wasn't very big. It's like the contrib- contributors are getting two hundred and fifty quid each, which is nothing. But most publications don't give you anything. And you know, asking people to commit to time and their creative talent and their brain space because that's as a writer, I know that half the battle with writing isn't putting it on the page. It's sort of all the bits in your head before it goes on the page, right? <laughs> Um, and I want to be paid for that time. <laughs> and as somebody who wants to be paid, I can't then ask people to give up their time without getting paid. I just can't do it. So, I mean, anyway, 
to cut a long story short, I managed to get them some money. But um, at the same time, it's not very much. So anyone who has given up their time for this is really doing it because they love the idea of the project and they agree that this is an important thing that should happen in the world. And so really it's it's more of a donation. Like the payment is just kind of, you know, what you call it, an honorarium. Yes, yes. <laughs> I hate that word. It's one of my least favorite words when it comes to being paid, an honorarium. I've received some of those for writing as well. Yeah. What does that mean? Covers the ink? I don't know. Just to make you feel a little better about it. Well, do you have anything that you want to leave the audience with? I feel like we could talk for hours, but uh, any parting words? Um, On my cookbook, I just want to say to people that this is a really kind of joyful cookbook. It's not one of those books which is you know really strict about everything it's it's fun like I want people to have fun when they cook I want people to engage with it and you know for that reason there's soundtracks in there there's Spotify playlists to cook to and there's lots of anecdotes about my time in Ghana and the stories of people I met also my family it's very personal and um, I think it's a really great way for people to like dip their toes into West African cuisine and get a start to get a flavor and an introduction to what it's about. And then after that, all the new cookbooks which will be coming out next year and there are going to be plenty. They can build a quite an expansive West African library quite soon, you know, and I'd love to be a part of it. So yeah, go check it out. Yeah, I think everyone should check it out. I have an older version of the book and then I have the new version of the book. So definitely go check out her book. I will link all that in the show notes. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Chris. I love your chat. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community's free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.